Women Crush Wednesday's listeners. This is Katie Chambers from New York Women in Film and Television. We are so excited to bring you this bonus episode featuring in its entirety a recording of one of our most recent NYWIF talks. Our NYWIF talk series brings updated news and vital information about the impact of COVID-19 on the media and entertainment industry. Industry professionals are featured in conversation discussing what you need to know about theatrical releases, digital advances, virtual tools, festival opportunities, production updates, and more. This is our April 14th NYWIF Talks Real Abilities. A little background info. Founded in 2007 by the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, Real Abilities Film Festival New York is the largest festival in the country dedicated to promoting awareness and appreciation of the lives, stories, and artistic expressions of people with disabilities. The week-long festival is renowned for its wide-ranging international film selection, riveting conversations, and performances presented annually in dozens of venues across the New York metropolitan area. In this NYWIF Talks with Real Abilities director and co-founder Isaac Zablocki, Michelle Spitz of Woman of Her Word, and filmmaker Lisa Denker, we discuss the changes that Real Abilities has instituted for the disabled community and what progress still needs to be made. We explore the ways movie theaters need to restructure to accommodate ADA laws, how filmmakers are paving their way to Hollywood with their original stories, and what Real Abilities offers disabled filmmakers today. The conversation is moderated by Executive Director at the Cerebral Palsy Foundation, Rachel Byrne, and it was attended by members of the entertainment and media community on Zoom. If you would like to access a written transcript of the program, you can do that on our website at nywift.org. Click Programs, then click Programming Goes Digital. And this special edition of Nywift Talks is brought to you by our supporter, Tito's Handmade Vodka. And now, Nywift Talks Real Abilities. Thank you for being here, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Now, I'd like to introduce Executive Director at the Cerebral Palsy Foundation, Rachel Byrne. Thank you, and I am so excited to be here this afternoon and be moderating this panel. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for um, this panel today. Uh, as you just heard, my name is Rachel Byrne, and I'm the Executive Director of the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Now, I am thrilled to actually welcome our first panelist. Um, Isaac Zablocki is Isaac is the director of film programs at the Marlene Mayerson JCC in Manhattan and the director and co-founder of Real Abilities, the New York Disabilities Film Festival. Since 2004, Isaac has been developing film programs at the JCC, including the Israel Film Centre, Beyond Real Abilities, and he programs multiple film festivals annually, including the acclaimed other Israel Film Festival about Arab and minority populations in Israel. So thank you so much for joining us, Isaac. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Our next panellist that I would like to introduce you to is Michelle Spitz. Uh, Michelle is of Women of Her Word and is a voiceover artist, public speaker, philanthropist and influencer, most passionate about advocating for media accessibility and disability awareness. She has over seven and a half years experience of producing, narrating, consulting and project managing audio description assets for over 80 projects, including film broadcast and digital media. Among creating audio description for many film genres and various subjects, Michelle is a member of NIWIF in stating audio description grants for their annual disability film finishing fund and is also aligned with the Real Abilities uh, Film Festi Festival funding the audio description film assets for their annual film festivals. So thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Thank you very much. Looking forward to being here. And we are also hoping um, 
that Lisa Danker will also be able to join our panel um, throughout the afternoon. Uh, Lisa is a filmmaker who grew up in a family of artists and designers, innately uh, developing her visual skills, working as an art director and set director in the LA film industry. She also worked on features and productions such as Gas Food and Lodging, the Grammy Award-winning Ain't It Heavy music video for Melissa Etheridge and was the set director for the film Citizen Youth. Uh, Lisa is also the recipient of the 2020 New York Women in Film and Television Lorene Arbus Disability Award, a grant for her film Still Duty. And so hopefully Lisa will be able to join us um, in a moment. But I would just like to welcome everybody and we will start the panel uh, with Isaac and Michelle. So to get started, obviously we are in interesting times, there's no doubt about that. And Isaac, Tell us a little bit about your venture into founding Real Abilities and what your goals have been since found, uh, founding it. So this is our 13th year of the festival. So it's, it's, been, it's been an amazing ride and it's amazing to see. I look back at like the early years and see how much we've changed. Mm -hmm. um, we founded it um, really as a concept of, actually I run, was running the film program back then of the JCC in Manhattan. And my, my take on film has always been that film is a form of education. And although I have a very close relation, I personally have a learning disability and um, have a very close relation to the disability community. Um, I have a brother with a disability. And of course, like most of us um, uh, have aging parents that uh, um, uh, of course relate to the community as well. And yet it was not really from the personal connection to the disability as much as it was from the cinematic perspective of seeing that there are these amazing movies out there about a community that is underserved and underrepresented and they are not fitting in, in um, you know, the Hollywood or film festival um, uh, um, playground. And, um, and I thought that these films, we, you know, we were showing films here and there that related to disability and there was a clear interest and there was a clear demand. And after a while, I saw that we I had, it was back in the DVD days and I'd get my screeners on DVDs and I had this whole stack. And I said, you know, we have enough here for a festival. And as fate would have it, I uh, would meet a woman named um, Anita Altman who ran a network of disability organizations. And together we founded this festival and that, that concept that she brought to the table of really having this be part of the community and as part of a network, that this is not just, um, this is not another, you know, wannabe Sundance or we, we, we don't aim for that. We are actually coming very much from, you know, high level cinema, but um, from a perspective of uh, the community and bringing the community together and finding ways to create change through film. Yeah, no, I think what Real Abilities has done has the exposure um, and also, as you said, this real piece of community is so important. And, you know, as a, you know, a executive director at a foundation who obviously uh, serves our community with disabilities, you know, I thank you for actually putting this together because it was such a big hole in the festival uh, scene within everything going on. But how challenging has it been for you to pull off real abilities this year and last year, really? Like what, what's, what are the changes that have happened when we're thinking about what's going on with COVID? Is something going on? Something like <laughs> I'm still in denial. Um, it's, it's really, so last year we actually pivoted 
to a um, to a virtual festival. We were supposed to run mid March and towards the end of March, mid late mm-hmm. March. So we had planned everything in person. Tickets were bought for all the guests, um, and we had to make this tough decision of like you know nobody knew what was going on then. And we decided we had we had a lot of experience through some of our other programs with the virtual world. So we felt comfortable enough to find the ways. It was really like you know grassroots and and we like put it together and it was one of the first virtual festivals honestly definitely one the first one that was taking on the concept of um, being accessible and what we learned last year we learned so much but um, most of all we got all these emails from people saying that the this was the first time they were able to attend real abilities we doubled our numbers People who are always trying to be accessible and we realized that being virtual actually allows you to be more accessible. We figured out all the ways to have everything we needed. Michelle's wonderful audio description played um, openly on, you know, you choose the audio description film and and uh, and that version, you get to watch that version. Um, we had, you know, ASL interpreters, um, live captioning. Zoom had not done their captioning yet, but we're still keeping um, a live stenographer to actually do the captioning. And this year we already like knew what we were getting into and were able to really build on that and find the right ways to, to, to flow with this virtual format. And we've, we've been running over a hundred programs throughout the year of different kinds and have had, uh, have, have been building this kind of format. So we, we really feel confident this year. We're going to actually have our first in-person programs in, um, uh, in over a year. So our opening night is going to be a very safe um, uh, drive-in in the Queens mm-hmm. drive-in with rooftop films. And our, we're going to have a comedy night. We tried comedy night last year on, on Zoom. And that was one of the places that we learned that comedy just doesn't work well on Zoom. And um, we're doing it on, our, on the rooftop of the JCC. We're going to have uh, the first in-person event at the JCC for over a year. That's outside of our gym and nursery school. So it's really exciting. We're building it all from scratch, you know, like following the rules and making it all as safe as possible. Um, but I'll share like one one little element that's changed. So we use, for instance, uh, as our streaming platform, we use a platform called Eventive that is really popular with a lot of film festivals and we've been using it. And we're gonna be the, f- because of our festival, they have implemented audio description. Oh, yes. We yeah. are going to be, we just tested it out this week. It is, you can't imagine the pressure, like, you know, like it's these, this technology is being tested out two weeks before our festival runs. Um, we have to get all of our films up there and make sure it's all in sync. Michelle, you know how many details go into this. Yeah. And it's and it's just amazing. And I tested it. It works beautifully. Um, so so we're really excited. Um, the the um, um, drive-in, first time this is going to be an accessible drive-in. We had to figure out with the with the drive-in folks who have run, you know, these tech folks who have run dozens of these. Um, they've never done this kind of technology before. It took like, you know, adding other channels, figuring out we had at bottom line was we have to buy little transistor radios for imagine this because you, most people who need audio description are not driving themselves, hopefully. Yeah to the drive-in, people <laughs> with low vision or are blind are, are, are usually take, having somebody drive them to the drive-in, um, except for my grandfather, he'll, he'll, he'll take his chances anyway. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that means that the people in the car, this was like something we never thought of, the two people in the car 
One is seen, one is not. They need two different sound systems, but the, um, the, the sound that's coming through the radio will only work for one, one of them. So we're buying little transistor radios that can pick up the other signal and handing them out to people as they come in. And I think this is the phenomenal thing about COVID, right? There are some silver linings that we are identifying, particularly when it comes to accessibility and thinking what we would have thought was too hard before, we're now coming up with creative ways, like buying radios and saying, no, this isn't too hard. This should be the gold standard. This should be the way it is. Michelle, before we actually get into some of the different pieces, I want people, just in case they're not aware of Women of the Word word and the work that you do. Could you just describe a little bit about the work that you do so everyone's familiar? Sure. sure. So my, my work is very deeply invested in creating a secondary audio track for low vision and blind audiences. And I work on various content, a good, a good percentage of it is disability-based. And it's a, a fairly detailed process in terms of creating that asset. And once the asset is created, ultimately we hope that the filmmaker will take that through the festivals, through their distribution, whatever their distributors are. And I often work with project managing the assets to be sure that the accessibility gets to the finish line and isn't throughout the, the lifespan of the film, so to speak. And it often comes from, for example, Real Abilities will say, I, you know, we have some films, are you interested in working on these? And I've had the honor of being offered those films, which have turned out to be really meaningful to me. Mm. And I often have the also the luxury of meeting some of the filmmakers and the subjects of the films, and it brings this work that much more forward um, and relevant because of disability at large, the subject matter at large. So I also in, put in place grants for post-production and kind grants so that films can become accessible. And by doing that, we raise awareness and we educate the public and we educate one filmmaker that hopefully the domino effect will be the next filmmaker and the next filmmaker. Mm -hmm. But really what's happening um, with real abilities right now, I think <laughs> I was very excited about the drive and now I just heard something else incredibly exciting because no streaming platform has given us the opportunity, for example, like Vimeo or Cinesend, none of them have offered this particular proprietary way of experiencing the audio description. So this is actually really monumental, something I can't wait to share when I learn a little bit more about it. And I know other festivals or other filmmakers or people that are streaming right now are struggling with how are they gonna use this asset? So essentially it's, it's quite a process, but it's a, a wonderful process to go through. And I end up often narrating them or I hire talent to narrate or narrate with me or what have you. No, I think it's a phenomenal piece that, you know, when, if, and if anyone who's watching gets an opportunity to actually, you know, experience a film with audio descriptions, you know, I highly recommend it because it really gives you a, an opportunity to, to see it in a potentially different light. And obviously the ones that you've done, Michelle, are phenomenal. You know, I've been pushed enough mm -hmm. to listen to the ones that you've done. Yeah. And I think this is the exciting piece, as you said, you know, moving forward, you know, what does the future look like for film? What does the future look like for accessibility for festivals? You know, we know, as you said, Michelle, the audio descriptions have been done and, you know, uh, I'd love to know what your thoughts are for live events, like what's going to happen with, uh, you know, real abilities and hopefully who we need to get on board to see this happening more. Are when, and are you speaking of also cinemas and theatrical releases or are you speaking Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Like, you know, like a long mm -hmm. picture, like thinking, okay, sure. fair, like for the festival, I'm so excited to hear 
that this is yeah. potentially going to be happening at Real Abilities. And good on you, Isaac, for taking that on, for being the, I suppose, you know, the, the first adopters and testing out this new um, technology. But is there a future? Yeah, is, is there a future where you would see this in cinema, where you would see opportunities for a, a lot more access? Um, I'll, I'll respond to that initially. We already have a fair bit of access because it was mandated in 2019 that all movie theaters, for the most part, unless there's some sort of financial distress, have to have a, a, a handful of audio description headsets in addition to captioning bars or any accommodations for mm -hmm. both those communities. So the interesting sort of disconnect is that while the movie theaters are required to have the equipment and it's only a minimal amount, it isn't required that all media be audio described. So what's happened is it is required that media be captioned. So because there isn't that requirement, audio description in many cases, either voluntary or by contract of, of very large production companies. But what's happening is Sundance and South by Southwest, and um, there's another one I can't remember the name of right now, are all now adopting audio description and caption accommodations in terms of their screenings. And then we have to bear in mind that there are people voting for these films at the film festivals. How would a low vision or blind person who's voting be able to vote if they can't experience the film. So there's a long way to come with that aspect, but it is moving the dial. And, and thanks to Real Abilities and Isaac that they set a precedence and other film festers are looking at them as models of how to do this. Um, I think no that pressure, we're going to see a lot of it. Pardon me? Yeah. I said no pressure, Isaac. You've got two weeks to sort this out. Perfect. <laughs> But it really, it really is the case. And in addition to that, other than theaters and streaming, which of course is what's happening, which is proprietary, for example, is Amazon or people are putting things on YouTube or iTunes or what have you, people are finding other ways to do what they're doing. But if it's broadcast, a lot of broadcast is adopting it, but it's not a hundred percent, but a large percentage is better than no percentage. And the percentage is expanding greatly because people are learning more about it and taking it on as a mindset of inclusivity, not just in terms of content, but in terms of accessibility. And Isaac, I'll ask you this question, actually both of you this question, but you know, have you seen a growth and a shift in this in the last 12 months? Has COVID actually helped put, I suppose, pressure on other industries or other festivals to do more um, or and, and given, I suppose, even some of the tech components. So, you know, we spoke about some of the other platforms. Is there a shift happening in the last 12 months? I think we're amidst a revolution, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. both on the technological level, as you pointed out, um, there's definitely, I mean, I mean, this virtual world that has opened up that a year ago when we started working with this, we had to like, you know, piecemeal it together. And now we, we see that these companies actually can run things and offer things virtually. If Hollywood realizes that they could continue to offer their films in a virtual, more accessible format for people who can never go to a movie theater so they could be there as part of opening weekend, um, that's something that, of course, we have a long way to go, but um, something that, that definitely this pandemic has opened that concept to. Um, in, in general, I think, I mean, of course, we try to we try to help out other the industry in general and the industry is changing very quickly. I mean, this goes also as far as um, as far as inclusion of people with disabilities within mm -hmm. um, the themes of films, um, within actors, um, authentic casting um, within 
um, people behind the scenes with disabilities. And um, I have to admit that we're living at a time right now where diversity and inclusion is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, the Academy has finally actually made um, some big changes and mm -hmm. that's going to impact everything. And, and I think we're going to see more, we, we're already seeing more representation and we're going to see even more and it's going to keep growing. And, um, and we're excited just to be a part of that revolution. And we've always said, you know, we're, we're there till real abilities becomes obsolete till, till there's a time where a disability film festival would be so redundant because, you know, mm -hmm. the films are everywhere um, that we're not needed anymore. I can also comment yeah. on that. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. No, Michelle, I was just about to say. I'm so sorry. I just want to. I just want to make one comment about that. I actually am. I am. Um, I live in San Francisco, but my travel has been back and forth between New York, San Francisco, and LA for the last seven years, and I'm often sort of right in the middle, smack in the middle of the sensibility between really East Coast sensibility and also the European sensibility and let's let's say for all purposes maybe the hollywood sensibility about accessibility and they do vary and they also merge so part of my awareness and my involvement in the disability community at large and helping them participate as artists or patrons also is it's really coming together right so in isaac's commentary this is very true it's because of the pandemic in addition to everything that's happened in the last year I believe that everybody is intended to be considered now. And so that means many more things than just the peripheral conversation. So with that in mind, and the fact that we can't reach each other in person, we have no choice but to make our world more accessible and more inclusive. So I think it has resulted actually in a gift outside of what this pandemic and other things that happened last year have resulted in. Yeah, and I think this momentum, as you said, this. Isaac revolution that is happening and the momentum that's getting uh, hopefully within Hollywood and to a larger scale, you know, across the world, really, as you know, you just sort of mentioned, Michelle, is really important. Now, I am excited to actually introduce um, our other panellist, uh, Lisa Denker, who has been able to join us. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Apologies, but I am here. No problems. Um, uh, as I'm, I'm honoured to, to meet you all also. Hello, Isaac. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Lisa is a filmmaker and is the recipient of the 2020 uh, New York Women in Film and Television Lorene Arbus Disability Award grant for her film Still Duty. And so just welcome, Lisa, and we're excited to have you on the panel and we've got some really great questions about that film, actually, and that documentary. And um, I was fortunate enough to be on the panel um, for looking at those awards. And I must say this, uh, that film and that documentary is amazing. Thank you. So just to sort of keep going on, obviously on the conversation that we were just having, um, Michelle, what do you see that still needs to be done though? You know, where do you see these sort of big gaps when it comes to audio description? What, what, does, what needs to be done within the community and, and what can others do to support this more? Um, I have always said that, first of all, educating as many people as we can about it, first and foremost, and talking about it in the industry, outside of the industry, sort of a universal conversation is probably one of the biggest tools we have. Second to that is that, unfortunately, there are disconnects, there are breaks sort of in the chain 
of command as far as the assets making it to the finish line, which means there's a lot of work put into creating, for example, audio description tracks that go along with the film. And often one person didn't give it to this person a distributor didn't know what it was. The filmmaker didn't maybe perhaps push it far enough. And then at times it may get to one distribution arm and not the other, whether it's streaming or theatrical or uh, for that matter, travel uh, industries. There's so many things that have to take place. So there has to be some knowledge base in terms of the value of what it is, how it is used, how we can advocate for it and be sure that we are all advocating that it goes to where it needs to go because to create these assets and for them not to reach the, the, intended audience leaves the audience out and leaves that incredible artistry of the filmmakers or whomever out of reaching these individuals. So I think that it really is knowledge-based and part of it, I will be talking at um, as a guest lecturer at NYU this year, and I'll be doing a lot of that this year and next year. Part of it is to go to film school into these you know areas where we can talk about it and the future media makers and current media makers by like panels like this and so on and so forth, we'll learn what this is. And the curiosity and embracing it, um, I think, is key. That's part of how we're going to do this. But it's a lot of knowledge, and we can't blame people for not knowing what they don't know. We can only try to educate and enlighten people as to what this is and the value of it. And I think that really is one of the most important parts of it. Yeah, no, and I think obviously the work that you're doing is accelerating that and understand that, you know, how... uh, instrumental you have been to actually get it to where it is at this stage. Um, I, I have to I, add I have to add to that that I mean and yes everything Michelle says is is crucial and it's really I mean when you think about I, I've been speaking to different um, cinemas and cinema owners and a lot of the art houses who are not necessarily required to have the same kind of um, of uh, audio description available but um, for so many of them they said you know the vision loss um, community is not showing up at our theater you know we put in this whole new system and they don't show up. And I explained to them that they're not showing up because, you know, for so many years and so, and I mean, it continues even now, you know, you'll go to a film festival and the film festival will say, we have audio description, but then they never tested it and it doesn't work. Or they have audio description, but not for certain films. And they didn't very clearly um, um, uh, note that somewhere. Um, They have that only for some of the films. So you're like, you know, which ones, where do I, how do I figure this all out? And it becomes so complicated that yes, of course, a lot of, a lot of people who would actually enjoy these um, accessibility aids um, kind of uh, lose their hope or, or just, just give up. And, and I think that's something that, uh, that we need, we need to rebuild the trust. Mm-hmm. and really make things so easily accessible and not just for some, but really across the board. There's the concept of universal design, which is where you don't have to ask. You don't have to look for the person who's going to show you the special way to get in to be able to see the film. Um, it should be in a way e- as easily accessible for absolutely everyone. And, and, and it's, not, it's not so hard to offer that. It's a really a change of attitude. I mean, take a festival like Sundance can say, you know what? We require you to have a DCP in order to show your film. We require you to have audio description to show your film. And, um, and, and that's, that's all it would take to, to begin that change. Um, make make the people who create the technology mm-hmm. offer it in the simplest ways. And it, there's, there's plenty of easy solutions today with the technology that's out there. 
No, and I think, you know, I, I think anyone who's watching this panel today, if you get the opportunity to participate in the Real Abilities Festival this year, please do so because you're going to see, as we said, some things happening that potentially have never happened before and, you know, have a look and go, wow, this is the way it could be and this is the way it could be at all festivals. And, um, you know, I think that's a, a really exciting place to move forward from, to say, all right, well, this is, it can be done. And as you said, Isaac, sometimes it's getting creative, but most of the time there are easy solutions. Most of the times it's just going, okay, let's do it. Let's actually make it happen. Now, Lisa, I want to make sure to join you into the conversation as well. And obviously as a filmmaker and um, those different pieces, you've probably had to deal with some of these different things in, in making films. What's your view on um as a filmmaker, the, the steps in looking at accessibility of a film? Well, um, and what's your experience more than anything else? You know, has it been a, an easy experience for you or, or has it been difficult actually finding some of these different things to be able to do? Well, I, I think that um, what I think of first is funding. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm here because the film just recently received that the NIWIF Lorena Arbus grant. Uh, which is fabulous, with the additional uh, bonus of Michelle doing the audio description. And that just is amazing. I, this film is long uh, in the making. And there are many, um, the, the film, when I started, it was never in fashion. So it was kind of hard to, to fundraise to begin with. And, um, but it certainly wasn't in fashion as far as fulfilling criteria, what funders were looking for most of the time. The initial key grants were local to Judy Finelli, the subject in San Francisco. And that's how it really got going. Mm -hmm. um, but thinking about, um, I, I guess your main question is about accessibility for no, this well, film is, and getting this film out or? Yeah, um, no, well, you kind of just answered it though, like thinking about funding and thinking about filmmakers going, okay, how do we get this into place? How do we make it that this is common practice? And as you said, Isaac, maybe it is if you want to enter this in a film festival, you have to have audio description. But then it does come down to this next piece is, well, how do you get that audio description funded? And, you know, Michelle, I know you offer your services, you know, far and wide and, and you know, obviously as part of this grant, um, which is phenomenal, but not everyone has that opportunity. So, you know, is there other places that even, Michelle, you're aware of where people can go to to try and get things like this funded? I, I'm going to defer to Isaac for a minute because, Isaac, do you want to explain how you've put audio description in place and what's happened over the years? Um, of course, of course, um, always thanks to Michelle. Um, but no, <laughs> we, we definitely, I mean, we've, we've had to raise money for this. We actually, it's uh, kind of one of the perks for Real Abilities. It shouldn't be the business plan, but yes, if you go to Real Abilities, we create audio description and captions for all the films. We actually, I have to note, this year, Michelle, you probably went over all the films with us. And, and this year, more than ever, um, films came to us with those accessibility aids. Right. So we're, we're going in the right direction. Um, and and we, we, you know, some years in the past had to create for 100% of the films. And for that, we've looked for like creative ways. We've looked for, we actually created a sponsorship for each, each, um, each film. So you create the accessibility for a film and one of our sponsors comes in and supports that and creates them all. Their credit lives on with that film. So um, it's there whenever those audio, those, those accessibility aids are used. 
And it's a great gift to the filmmakers. Um, the filmmakers, I mean, I think have to start writing it into the budget when they're from, from the beginning of the film, you know, the same way you write in a budget into the budget color correction, you write in um, the accessibility aids, it should be made a requirement. A lot of the time, I understand, especially independent filmmakers that have such limited funds, they're waiting for the distributor to take that on because it really only needs to come once it's in the distribution stage. Um, but ideally this would come actually in an earlier stage. Ideally this would come when they're even submitting to their first film festival. Mm -hmm. Think about it, that a panelist from a film festival can't, have, can't be either either deaf or blind to be, to, to use those specific examples, um, they won't be able to access a film that doesn't have audio description or captions, which means they won't be part of the selection process. That's already, um, a, a, will limit um, how our entire industry works. So if this is really, you know, part of the finished process, like, you know, in those, in that final stage, and by the way, I have to say, it's all very much artistic and the directors need to be involved with this. Um, a lot of the times I see once a distributor takes it on, then a distributor checks out the audio description and the captions. And mm -hmm. you never want that to, as a director, Lisa, you never want that to happen. You want to obviously have an eye on it and know where where this is being intrusive, where this is being actually not accurately descriptive. And and, and therefore, it needs to really happen um, within that artistic, before the film is locked, within that artistic stage. And I think one of the really big, you know, important things to point out is when we're talking about you know, who, are, who is this community? It's a large community. We're talking about, you know, 20 to 25% of the United States individuals have disabilities. So there is a huge amount of people potentially in different formats that are missing out on the opportunity of um, being represented in films, obviously accessing films, you know, so it's not just for a very small amount of people. We're, we're talking about a, a lot of people here um, who should be able to actually experience these uh, films. Now, I want to sort of take a little bit of a switch on gears because I would really love to talk about, obviously, the, the documentary, Lisa, that you have made and obviously sort of the why. You know, you spoke about that it wasn't really on trend at the time when you started this. And um, you. obviously you've got some very passionate people on this panel and myself included where accessibility and disability is our world and it's everything that we do. But what made you want to make a documentary about Judy Finelli? Um, you know, I, I knew of Judy Finelli when I was young, when I was a young woman. Um, I used to juggle when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to Judy early in my life. But later in my life, a couple of people that I knew approached me and said, hey, you know, Judy's now back at Circus Center and um, it's it's pretty cool. And they kind of you know, nudged me a little and I investigated it. And um, I initially, I really considered it. And then I thought, no, it's too similar to uh, the previous film, Heart of the Sea, about a Hawaiian legend, Rel Sun, who was Hawaii's first face for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And, but then a year went by and I did attend a big fundraiser for Judy. And it was in this moment at uh, the Palace of Fine Arts when I saw the community there fundraising for her. Um, and I saw the students wrapped around her after the show. Um, it was a moment where I was drawn in. And then I started talking to Judy. Judy shared her unpublished manuscript. And when I saw that story arc, 
I was really pulled in. And then I started talking to Judy about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I started envisioning a film too. And we worked from there. You know, and as I said, for those that haven't seen Still Judy, it's a really phenomenal um, piece. And, um, you know, Judy's life and, and, you know, the story arc that you have in, in looking at Judy's life, you know, what do you hope that audiences will take away from it? Well, I think what it really centers on that, that gives it universality is, is that in the hardest or, or most challenging of situations or times, she's just an amazing example of finding new meaning and moving forward. Mm -hmm. And she's had to do that over and over again. And the film um, does um, get at that. And um, I, I would say that is maybe the main theme that, that I personally really appreciate. Um, there's so much more, but it, that's a simple answer. No, and I think there's there's joy in that answer, though, right? There is going okay as as a viewer, you know, what is what are they taking away? And to see her um, strength, resilience, there's there's so many wonderful descriptions for Judy as a as a human being. Um, yeah. So, sort of moving on, like thinking about those different steps, what do you hope, um, uh, you know, for for the film, like what, what do you hope uh, are the next steps for you? Obviously, you were awarded this grant. Um, yeah, what are, you, what are your hopes for the film? Well, I'm really on the post-production path and right now working on archive. And that's, that's, um, that's hard going because um, some of the archive is expensive. So it's forcing me to re-edit and this is a typical process. But um, and make decisions. But the film tends to get better the more I sh shake out of it. And um, I, I, you know, once um, this is all locked in, which will be soon, then I can move on into bigger post phases. Um, you know, it's a lot to fund. I mean, I will still need to fundraise to get it through online audio composer. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I, the film does not have distribution. And in the past, um, you know, I had a, applied to um, some of the, the obvious realms for this film, like PBS um, series, like Independent Lens or, uh, and so on, or Reframed America. You know, one time Reframed America was interested and truly California was. But the film wasn't far enough along. They were on such a quick time cycle that the turnaround and the lack of funds didn't make those happen. And now I'm really glad that it didn't yeah. happen actually, because I think it's a better film now than it was at that time. Yeah. And I think this, you know, for anyone who is a filmmaker, who's watching um, Isaac, I'll, I'll ask you this question. You know, when we, when we hear stories about this film and, and, you know, still Judy and how important this film is for hopefully other people to see and be distributed. Um, what are some of the tips that you might give to any of our sort of who are watching today to get it to that stage, you know, and particularly on some of these uh, topics where, where we're trying to promote, uh, obviously, film around disability, make sure those stories are told. What are some of your tips that you could um, throw out there? Um, 
It's a good question, but I, I think I, first of all, seeking out um, as much authenticity as possible, I think mm -hmm. is something that's crucial and will elevate your story and allow you to, to really be honest to, to the community. And, and I think, I think the community itself um, has, it is, it's very broad and is very spread out, but um, there's, there's a lot of resources within it. And it's great to try to engage that community. And I think it will, that, that will make whatever community, whatever, whatever part of the, of the disability community um, you're making a film about, I think to make sure to have some level of engagement um, mm. is, is a great place to start. Um, funding, listen, for any independent filmmaker is always challenging. And I have to say that if it's a, if it's a film about um, uh, disability, unfortunately, Hollywood has not made it um, easy enough yet. And we're, and we're still trying to put those images out there. So, I mean, I, I hear it myself. I live on the Upper West Side and this is a progressive community. And people say to me, I don't do disability. And, and it's like, would you say that about any other minority group? And, and how do we change those perspectives? And I think the more we see it out there, the more we make sure that people go to those films. I mean, when you remember that 20% of our community is, are, are, is, of our society are people with disabilities. People with disabilities have to start, that community, our community needs to start seeing these films. Mm -hmm. If 20% of, of the population went to see a, a, a certain film, that film will make a lot of money and more people will invest in films like it. So, um, so it needs to start internally. It needs to, we need to change these perceptions. We need to allow people to also, you know, you got to meet people where they are. As a friend of mine, uh, Lawrence Carter Long always says, um, you got to meet them where they are. So I think it's a lot of the time working hard to bring these concepts. This might be a challenge for some people, bring it to them and, and challenge them. No, I think that's such great advice. And I think, um, Michelle, a, a sort of a question for you, for filmmakers as well, who are sort of potentially in this sort of final stage and, and ready to go, put audio descriptions on. What do they do? How do they get that bit sort of across the line? In terms of? Well, who do, who do they reach out to? You know, what is to get oh. these audio descriptions done? Like what's the, right. what resources are available to them? El, the number. <laughs> One thing I wanted to respond earlier was, um, after Isaac was speaking, I think another way to create more funding for people to perhaps create audio description and captions, what have you, uh, before the film goes to any festival or what have you, are other finishing film grants. For example, there are many other organizations, not just film festivals, that should have this in place. It would make a very big difference because it would, it would bring awareness to it. And I think even, for example, grants perhaps one day from the NEA and the Ford Foundation, all these people, I think there should be a pool of funding. Hopefully it would be my dream one day. I'd like to facilitate some of this, that these larger organizations that are supporting disability at large are also going to help the accessibility assets. That's one thought I've had. The other, as far as addressing that question. So People can go to larger companies, post-production companies, and 
requests that their film be audio described and or captioned. They also can go, for example, to the um, ACB website. There is a page of various people that do this work and perhaps they can determine what budget they're working with and call some of these individuals or email some of these individuals. So it happens in many different ways. I also believe the San Francisco Film Festival is now also creating finishing film grants with part of that protocol of audio description captioning being part of it. It's sort of a, a, a condition. So there are many ways to do that, or you know, we can refer people, Isaac, you probably can refer people, I can refer people. And if I have room in my budget and my time, I will certainly consider people when I can. So I think we just have to figure out a way to do it. And I'm, I agree with Isaac, when I'm doing any of my lectures or my panels, I do suggest that people carve out um, perhaps a line in their budget to dedicate to this. And if the mindset is built there in place, I think the funding will come. It's not an enormous amount. It's not a very small amount it, for some people, especially that are working with every penny matters, right? Especially independent filmmakers. But where there's a will, there's a way. And um, I encourage people to reach out to me and perhaps I can redirect them or if I'm available, we'll see what you know my schedule is. But I just want to, I don't want people to find a reason not to do it. I want people to find a reason and every reason to do it. And I think you brought up a wonderful point as well. Like there are lots of organizations. So even for example, the Cerebral Palsy Foundation, you know, we may not have a specific grant for this particular purpose right now, but we absolutely are always looking to try to support our community. And if a project's put in front of us that we support, we, we would do that as well. So I think this is the thing looking sort of broader potentially than just even the film industry for some funding opportunities, you know, that we really do look at supporting the community and making sure this authentic storytelling gets told. Um, you know, we've got some wonderful questions actually coming in. So I do want to go to the audience. Um, now, one of the first ones is actually sort of talking about what we've just been going on about, like how can we as a community break down some of the stigma through our projects? Um, so just to, for a bit of background, um, this uh, individual uh is a survivor of a coma in grad school who's now developing a feature documentary highlighting the science of neurological uh, restoration. But really sort of the question is around stigma. And I think, um, Isaac, I'll start with you with this question because, you know, when you think about what Real Abilities is doing, you really have broken down so many barriers when it comes to stigma and bias towards individuals with disability and particularly in the film industry. Um, absolutely. And I give credit, of course, to the Cerebral Palsy Foundation as well. Um, this is this is like part of what we're all about. And mm -hmm. film is a great way to break down stigmas and, first of all, to give representation. And that there's there's a definite lack of. Um, uh, it, it was amazing. We, sh we showed a few years. I we showed a few years ago. We showed a film um, to a group of kids from a school for children um, with disabilities. Um, this was their first time having a film experience. Part of their their school experience is actually to to be taken to the supermarket for the first time, to be taken uh, to be trained in in, in certain areas. Um, and cinemas weren't opening up to them, so they came to um, to our cinema for real abilities. We were of course open to them. And we show them films that happen to be, and it's not always that, you know, oh, if you have, um, if you're autistic, then you want to watch a film about autism. It might not be true, but for these children to see people like them up mm -hmm. on the screen for the first time being played in, in, in an authentic way, 
um, was was groundbreaking for them and gave them, you know, such a such such a, an understanding of of a presence of who they are and 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 a recognition. And so, so I think that that's one side of it, showing it um, to the community themselves. But there's also, of course, uh, of course, film is a great way to get people. I mean, we, we choose films that are just good stories and mm-hmm. are engaging. And I like to think anyone, you can have, think you have no connection to disability whatsoever. Um, everyone does. Um, but, <laughs> but you might think that you don't. And, and you'll enjoy these films because they're, they're well-made, they're well-told, they're, they're, they're moving, they're exciting, they're funny, they're whatever they are. And, that's, and film is just such a great way to open that door and to allow people to who who normally on the street possibly i mean sometimes say they don't know how to interact with people with disabilities when i see somebody in a wheelchair what do i do what do i say um hi is a good place to start by the way but um um but when you see when you spend an hour and a half watching a feature film um about somebody with a disability this enters your psyche a little bit and and makes you more familiar with a world that is inclusive and I think it comes down to this authentic storytelling. So, Lisa, I'm going to ask you this question because obviously that's what you've done with this film is sort of tell an authentic story and tell a, a story that doesn't have, you know, it still has its trial and tribulations, but it's telling Judy's story in a way that um, is authentic to her. I think you've really given her a, such a, a powerful and strong voice in your film. But how do you maintain that authenticity? you know, as you're writing that narrative. And I think this is important for filmmakers to think about. Well, I do think that paying attention to the backbone of the film, which um, was was Judy's interview. And that was one of the first filmings. Um, and really um, utilizing, Judy was very articulate. And um, not only did we have some, some great um, delivery of, of her sharing her life story in from the interview, but we also went back and uh, recorded audio, just audio, um, what we called the Judy monologue um, for fill-in pieces um, in the opening of the film, um, throughout the film actually, and the ending um, in three major places. Um, so it was important to let Judy tell her story. And um, just one note about the Judy interview is that it was unusual to film that because for Judy to have the vocal energy uh, to withstand an interview, which as we all know, interviews take a while. um, And we um, had to put the camera on a jib and put it over Judy as she was reclined backwards, which was better for her her lungs, for her air, for her um, delivery. And, and she um, said she could, la- you know, for her, that was a, a longer lasting position to do an interview in. So we did that. And um, working with her energy also, it was over two month period and it was 13 hours. And there was a lot to pull from. And Judy was, um, the reason why it was so long is she shared her manuscript. So I was over prepared and asked way too many questions. <laughs> I think you got creative as well, right? And I think this is the piece. From the very beginning, you had Judy at the forefront of being involved in the, also in the making of the film, telling you, okay, well, this is where I need to be. You need to meet me where I'm at. 
you need to meet me, kind of what you just said before, um, Isaac, you know, meet even the, the subject where they're at. Don't try to push them beyond, you know, what might be possible because then you will get the actual authentic story. You will get what you want. Um, you know, there's a lot um, right now, I suppose, in the, the general media about authentic representation, you know, particularly in Hollywood and particularly in feature films. Um, Michelle, you've been sort of in this industry now for a while. What, what can be done in relation to that? Obviously, there's a lot of stuff now. There, there is a shift in Hollywood. We're seeing more um, actors with disabilities actually playing those roles. Um, but what about behind the scenes? We've got a question that's come in. Um, what is being done to address underrepresented voices being included and used in audio description? So it's like thinking about specifically for you, but as a whole in film, you know, in every aspect of filmmaking, how can we have uh, disability representation increased? I think it's happening quite a bit, by the way. Uh, for example, I mean, Isaac can also speak on this. The opening night film is Best Summer Ever, and Best Summer Ever is a wonderful film that uh, incorporates people with disabilities and those without, and they are behind the camera. They are some of the um, production. They are also, I believe, wrote some of the music and singing and so on and so forth and acting. So that really goes on both sides of the screen, particularly for that film, which I audio described as well. And I think the other thing I wanted to point out, just listening to everybody, and I want to make sure I, I mention this, if you look at the Oscars right now, where we are with nominations, there are three films that are very prevalent there right now um, mm -hmm. that are based on disability subjects, and that's Crip Camp and Feeling Through, and... Um, the Sound of Metal. And that's unique that three films are in that category. And I think that says something about where we are as far as that's concerned. And as far as behind the camera and front of the camera involved in every way, shape or form, um, I have to also commend respectability because respectability stands behind all of that. And they put on beautiful uh, summer lab programs that I participate in as well. And people in the industry are helping people with disabilities learn about where they might see themselves. They're currently in their mid-career track or they're early on or what have you. And so for me, it's almost already there and I'm already part of that because I work within that. So I see that as part of the fabric already. I think more of it needs to take place and I think it's happening. And a lot of the studios are taking this on behind the scenes, behind the scenes rather, and also in front. So it's really already happening and evolving. And I think it's only gonna get more and more like that. And I think more people who are talented need to put themselves out there and make themselves visible as mm -hmm. far as what their capabilities are and reach out and, and apply for these positions. I think there's a wonderful future we have ahead. It's just really starting to evolve, but it's it's definitely moving. Yeah, and I and I think the other thing is, is for anyone who's watching, if you are a filmmaker and you're putting together your crew or you're putting together who's a part of it, have a look around you. Do you have diversity? Are you is is the is there representation um, within the people that you're working with? And if not, I'll start asking those questions. Going well, why? Um, you know, if if you're doing a film and um, the, the story is around somebody with a disability and you're looking to fill that role, you know, look within that disability community, look within finding that authentic voice. Because there's another question that's come in here and um, where is the best place to find crew members who are deaf, hard of hearing or have a disability? They want to make their crew more inclusive 
but they're saying they're having trouble finding crew members. And I think to your point, Michelle, they're out there. So absolutely, yeah. you know, it's it's not that whole piece. Well, if they were there, um, we would hire them or, you know, there just isn't enough enough good actors who have disabilities. Well, no, there are. Um, it's just a matter of looking in the right places and, you know, making your film feel accessible to those people. So I can respond to that. Not only would I personally suggest you reach out to respectability as an organization because they will post and they do every week um, opportunities for people that are being cast for various reasons with disabilities. So that that's already in place. Lights, camera access also does the same and they'll put posts out of opportunities. The other thing is there are um, a couple of agencies that represent talent with disability and they're helping place them in the media. So there are many ways to do this. And again, I would make myself visible and I would reach out to find out where they can make themselves more visible, but it does exist. It takes the slightest bit more effort, but um, but it makes all the difference. So it's worth making that effort to find them out there and agree that those those are great organizations. We too, as part of uh, Real Abilities, try to post any kind of cinema-related um, ad. And, and I want to know, them, uh, Rachel, just based on going back to your question, that yes, so so often, I mean, obviously, the visibility is on the actors, and that's why that gets a lot of attention. Um, but I mean, I think actually inclusion starts with with actually the writers, the directors, um, the people who are on set and making sure that's an inclusive environment. And by the way, the, the way to, to change it. And and I mean, I mean, Michelle, has, I'm glad Michelle has such a positive outlook on this, that we're really going in the right direction. Um, but it should be required. I mean, the same way, you know, there needs to be an equal, if not higher percentage of women on every set. There, need, there should be inclusion of full diversity. And don't forget within diversity, often the disability and diversity is included, is, is forgotten. So um, yeah, definitely um, keep that in mind. And, um, uh, and, and it really, I, I think we'll, we'll once, once um, uh, it's, once uh, um, different productions start really taking this seriously and hiring people with disabilities, um, it's gonna change our world. And oh, the storytelling that you're going to hear and the, the films themselves are going to become so much richer for it. They're, you know, and um, the stories that you have seen before that have been pretty much told sometimes by people without disabilities, you know, it's from their perspective. And um, if they had included people with disabilities in that film, it would have been so much better than what it was. And so I think, you know, that's where... I hope we see this progression and it continue to go because I, I hope it and I hope it goes like this. I hope we're just at the start of it and it's going to really sort of, you know, lift off in a way because it needs to happen. May I just mention two other things really quickly? Um, Jim Lebret is an amazing person. And of course he is the subject and, and involves of course the film Crip Camp. He has created a wonderful uh, group of people with disabilities making documentaries called Forward Doc. And I think if people are interested in participating in that, it's a great organization. It's in its infancy, but they're incredibly wonderful people. In addition to the Casting Society of America is also putting together protocol for accessibility on set and best practices, so on and so forth in casting. So it really, it really is there. It's really there. You just have to also seek it out. So I just wanted to note that also. Yeah, and I think, 
you know, a, a question for you now, Lisa, um, as we're sort of wrapping up. People want to know when's your film going to be available to the public? How can members of NIWIF see this film? Well, I'm hoping to get it through post um, this year. Yeah. In, well, you know, it'll probably take about eight, eight to 12 months to get it through, I think. Okay, so, so for anyone watching, that's going to be a, a very sort of important piece. And I think the other piece, you know, when you're thinking about um, the the makeup of, of your teams and who's being hired, you know, sometimes uh, not all disabilities are visible. I think that's important to sort of note out. We've spoken about very much sort of um, potentially visible disabilities and people don't have to disclose their disabilities and all of that as well. So, that's a, you know, it's an important piece to think about when you're sort of looking at your team and you can't just presume people don't have a disability just because you can't see it. But, um, you know, I, I think that's sometimes those individuals are left out of the conversation as well. You know, we think about, okay, accessibility, if you're thinking about a physical disability, yes, you can see that. You think about ranch, you think about those other things, but there are so many more components. Um, I think we've got maybe one more question, a time for one more question. And, and this is about um, actually Broadway. So do you feel since the Broadway closure has now begun to stream performances, do you feel this is an opportunity to follow suit to provide AED, ASL interpretation once Broadway reopens? So this is kind of, it's, this is an interesting thing, thinking about live performances somewhere like Broadway and opening, uh, I suppose, opportunity up there for um, other individuals to be able to go watch. I, I can respond to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a fair percentage of Broadway programs that are audio described and that have uh, captions, so and so forth, captioning bars, so and so forth. That happens uh, perhaps on certain days, certain times, but that actually is more prevalent in New York, uh, perhaps also in Europe, than it is in California. Mm -hmm. So it is there. And there are headsets that are used. There are also apps that are being used now and apps are becoming very prevalent also. Uh, you can use them in movie theaters. You can sync with your, your television. So this is, this is already embedded in it. And TDF, Theater Development Fund, does incredible work around accessible uh, Broadway programming and also accommodating other, uh, other disabilities such as autistic members in the audience and so on and so forth. So they're extraordinary and they're based in New York. Well, I, I think, you know, we have just had, you know, a wonderful conversation and I'm really excited to see where all of this is going to head in the next 12 months and the next two years. I think the work that this panel is doing is extraordinary. You're really elevating and lifting up and um, promoting what should hopefully become gold standard. As you said, Isaac, if, if all of this could go away, if this panel didn't need to be had because it was uh, commonplace, that would be a really wonderful thing. And I think we're on the right trajectory. So I just wanted to thank you all for being part of um, today's panel. And um, it's been wonderful uh, being here with you all. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, everybody.